Hi, folks. Just a couple of quick things before we get started. First off, I did want to mention that we have our first Patreon-exclusive episode up right now. It's about the wonderful film The Night of the Hunter. Uh, that's a really great film. I think we had a good conversation about it. So if you're interested in checking that out, uh, please check us out on Patreon. That link is in the show notes. Um, the regular feed will stay the same, so we're still going to keep doing a totally free episode every week. Um, but yeah, if you're interested in a little bit more, check us out on Patreon. Uh, and as always, we greatly appreciate you listening, and we appreciate the support. And if you feel the inclination, please, uh, you know, give us a rating on your podcast app, uh, you know, write us a review, let your friends know. All those things are tremendously helpful to us uh, to keep the show going. All right. Uh, that about does it. Let's get on with the show. Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, the podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. And today we are going to be finishing up our Halloween Horror Month with the 1963 Robert Wise film, The Haunting. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. Ninety years ago, a wealthy man named Hugh Crane built Hill House, a mansion with a dark and bloody reputation. Crane's first wife died when her carriage collided with a tree on the property. He remarried, and his second wife died as well, taking a mysterious tumble down the stairs. Crane's daughter lived her whole life in the house, requiring a nurse for assistance in her later years. She died when her cries for help went unheard by the nurse, who was with a male companion at the time. The nurse, who inherited the house, later hanged herself from the spiral staircase in the library. John Markway, a doctor who studies the paranormal, decides to conduct a study in Hill House, wherein he and three participants will spend the night in the mansion and document any supernatural experiences they have. Markway chooses three subjects for his study. Nell, a young woman who had a childhood experience with a poltergeist, Theo, a psychic, and Luke, the future heir to the house and a skeptic, whom Markway was compelled to include in the study. Nell, excited to escape her torturous home life with her abusive sister, is the first to arrive at Hill House. She is shown to her room by Mrs. Dudley, the house caretaker, who tells her the rules of the house. We leave before the dark comes. There won't be anyone around if you need help, in the night, in the dark. Soon after, the rest of the group arrives, and Markway gives everyone a brief primer on the house as well as what he expects of the study. That night, multiple supernatural events occur. Nell and Theo are woken in the middle of the night by a terrible banging sound at their doors. Luke and Markway chase a phantom dog around the grounds of the house. The next day, the group continues investigating the mansion. The words, help Eleanor come home, are scrawled on the wall, which greatly disturbed Nell. Markway considers sending Nell home due to her increasingly nervous behavior, but she begs him to let her stay. That night, Nell experiences more supernatural terrors, hearing ghostly whispers and feeling a phantom grasp her hand. The group becomes more wary of Nell and her seemingly erratic behavior. Markway's wife, Grace, arrives at Hill House. She demands Markway abandon his study of the supernatural and, when he refuses to leave, insists upon staying with him at the house, choosing to sleep in the nursery, a hotspot of supernatural activity where Hugh Crane's daughter died. Grace disappears in the night and the group goes searching for her. Nell, under a strange trance, goes to the library and climbs the spiral staircase where the previous owner had hanged herself. At the top, Nell sees Grace's ghostly face pop out of a trap door and nearly falls to her death before Markway saves her. Despite her pleading, Markway insists Nell leave given her fragile emotional state. She gets in her car and begins to drive toward the gate when she feels a spiritual presence taking control of the wheel. 
She considers whether to fight off the spirit when Grace suddenly appears in the headlights. The car swerves, hitting a tree and killing Nell. The group runs over to the accident scene. Grace explains that she awoke in the night and tried to find Markway's room, but got lost, finding herself in the attic near the trapdoor. Markway believes that a force led Nell to crash into the tree, the very same that killed Crane's first wife. Luke believes Nell crashed deliberately. Theo says Nell had nowhere else to go, and the house belongs to her now. So, Monica, uh, first thoughts on this movie? So I know I've seen this movie before, but it had been a really long time. So I didn't really remember any of it. I would say it's the only movie that I've seen for the podcast that legitimately scared me in the same way that new movies do. I mean, we can talk about this later if you want, but I wonder, because you had said when we talked about this before, whether you thought maybe there was just some kind of... um, barrier when I watched older movies where I thought, well, it's old, it's not that scary, so they didn't scare me. Do you think um, that's still the case? Why why did I find this movie scary? Well, so I think we will get into that a little bit when we're talking about the filmic techniques. I do, I'm very glad that this movie scared you because ever since we, we first covered horror and you were talking about how not scary you found these movies, I've been desperately trying to find something that would scare you <laughs> and this has been successful. So that's great. Um, no, and I, and I do remember this movie being scary the first time around, around whenever I watched it. I just don't remember anything about it, but right. yeah. To be fair, this is a pretty like famously scary film. I think um, Scorsese had it on his his like top ten scariest films of all time or something like that. So this one is certainly famous for that. So before we get uh, too much down into it, let's talk a little bit about the uh, creative personnel here. So this was directed by Robert Wise. I suggest everyone check out his filmography on IMDb or Wikipedia because he has kind of done it all. It actually surprises me because I think this is a name that's relatively well known, but perhaps not well known enough given all of the incredibly influential films he's done. So he did uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which was a a seminal science fiction film from, I believe, 1951, as well as West Side Story, the incredibly famous musical, and The Sound of Music. And he was a director on all of those? That's correct, right. That uh, That's his directorial career. So he was not always a director when he was working in film. He got his start at RKO, which is a company we've, we've talked about before. It's a, a very important film company up until... I think it it shuddered in the mid-60s. He got his start there. Apparently, he had a brother who was working at RKO who was able to get him a job in the shipping department where he worked for a period. I think this is something we're not really familiar with now in kind of any field, but it used to be that you could, you know, start on the ground floor and work your way up in a company. Uh, So Wise started on the ground floor in shipping and eventually got into sound editing and then transitioned over into kind of the film, the visual editing portion, Uh, at which point he did work on a a lot of films uh, as an editor. I think the, the biggest one would be Citizen Kane, frequently listed as the greatest film ever made, certainly one of the most discussed films ever made. He was the editor on that film. Uh, and then eventually he made his way into directing, starting to work on uh, some of the pictures I had mentioned earlier. Just briefly, for those of us who might not know, what, what does an edit- editor do on a film? Uh, So an editor basically assembles the sequence of images in coordination with the director, typically. Essentially, you know, if I shoot two hours worth of material, the editor is going to be the one who is like cutting up different shots, putting them together, you know, chopping out different portions, all of that kind of thing. And in this period, would that have meant literally cutting the strips of film? Yes, I'm glad you bring that up. So editing now is typically done, I think probably almost exclusively done on what we call nonlinear editing software, which is basically where you have a piece of software, you have a bunch of movie clips, like a little repository of movie clips, and you can drag them down to a timeline 
and kind of chop them up in you know in different ways and like put put things in different places uh anyone who's played around with iMovie it's essentially that that's a very basic version of this back at this period uh they were still having to cut using the actual film reels like specifically using the film that had been shot so as opposed to now when you can kind of oh I've got my timeline and it's got 60 minutes of footage on it and I want to go to whatever we shot at minute 35, I can just click there, right, and pull up that image. On these old machines, no, you had to move the reel. You had to play it all the way up to that point. You could, you know, fast forward or whatever, but it was a much more cumbersome process. This is a film that uses a lot of very quick cuts and just from a mechanical perspective uh that was a lot more laborious to do at this period than it would be uh if you're making a movie now next up we also have shirley jackson she wrote the novel that this film is based on uh which was titled the haunting of hill house um some of you may be familiar there was, uh, I, I think two years ago, there was a Netflix adaptation that used the full title, The Haunting of Hill House. That was a much more severe deviation from the source material. The film, from what I understand, is is a lot closer to what the novel was, um, but just, you know, as a frame of reference. This film is? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I this see. film, the Robert Wise film, was a lot closer. Uh, Shirley Jackson, who... Wrote uh, various novels. I have to admit, I, I've never read any of her novels, um, but I did read her short story, The Lottery, which I think um, maybe I know that was part of our curriculum when I was in, in I think, middle school or something. Uh, so I think uh, more people may be familiar with it. And that's um, that's a story where the entire thing is it's this society and everyone's talking about there's a there's some kind of lottery who's going to win the lottery and then it turns out the winner of the lottery is stoned to death in this kind of twist ending um so she's primarily known for that short story and this novel and she she from my understanding she worked a lot in horror uh and and primarily like kind of gothic uh literature Next up, we have the performers. Uh, so first off, we have Julie Harris as Nell, who uh, had a theater background. And it's it's interesting. Apparently, she, she's, she has said in interviews uh, after the fact that during the filming of this, this picture, she was suffering um, pretty severe depression. And during that time, she was also speaking very, she was not speaking very much with her, her fellow cast members, which was something I think noticed by especially Claire Bloom, who uh, plays Theo. I think she was kind of uh, put off by uh, Julie Harris's behavior. I couldn't say for sure. I think part of that may have been the depression, but part of it may have also been kind of character work and a little bit of um, uh, method acting, right? Trying to get into that headspace of this character who's you know there's a group and she's kind of outside of it and then next up as i had mentioned before we have claire bloom who also had a, a strong theatrical background possibly most famously for a streetcar named desire uh she has also done other films i think this might be her biggest appearance uh but she was in the 1981, 1980 uh, film Clash of the Titans, the, the Harryhausen picture. And she did also play Queen Mary in The King's Speech, which is a little bit more contemporary, but already like 10 years ago, I think. Was that really? T- I'm like, that movie came out two years ago. <laughs> no, okay. 2010. Yep. 10 years ago. Oh, gosh. It's horrible. And then kind of uh, rounding off the main, the main cast, uh, Russ Tamblin, who was, had previously worked with Robert Wise on West Side Story, who was a trained gymnast, actually. This is kind of an interesting role for him because I think he was known to be a very physical actor at, at this period. Um, we will, in the future, cover another one of his films, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Uh, that's what I thought. He r- what? Okay, that's where I knew his name from. Right, right. He has a very, especially at this period, he has a very recognizable, like, very boyish face. So, yeah, so we will be covering another film with him in it. And I think we get a little bit more into his performances during that episode. I did think uh, there was an interesting little bit of background. Apparently, he originally turned down this role uh, because he felt that that his character was just a jerk. 
Uh, and he didn't he was. like it. <laughs> I thought he was funny. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, MGM apparently forced him into it because he was... This is towards the end of the studio system, uh, but he was under contract with MGM and they were threatening him with suspension, um, which would basically mean that he wouldn't be able to get any roles for a time period. He'd be out of work. So it's kind of, you know, my way or the highway. Right. In later interviews, he he did say that this turned out to be one of his um, favorite films uh, that he had worked on. It's a little bit complicated with this, though, because I think, you know, when your boss tells you you got to do something or else you know, you're going to be financially punished for it. And then a couple of years later, you say that w- that actually worked out really well. You know, is that, is that really an honest claim? I don't, you know. I Maybe don't know. you're, we like our, our minds get accustomed to our circumstances and try to kind of retrofit everything. Oh, for, for sure. I was wondering who stood out to you in this film? What performances really resonated with you? For me, Richard Johnson, who played um, John Marquay. His role still stood out to me, but I think it might only be because of like what kind of character it was. Um, because I think his was the only character with a comforting presence. Um, and he was the character was consistently kind to everyone, although I guess his character was the one that put everyone in danger in the first place. So maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but um, I did enjoy Richard Johnson in that role. Okay, so let's get right into some of the details of this film. So I think the first thing I want to talk about, and I think it, it might be a really big determining factor in, in just how, how effective uh, this film is, is the production design, which I think is, is absolutely exquisite. Um, the production designer was Elliot Scott, who had worked on a lot of films, so Labyrinth, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, as well as uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I'm not a production design expert, but it seems to me an interesting approach that he uses here is over design because if you look uh as i was kind of going over the the different scenes and frames while i was um preparing these notes today it felt like almost every every scene every location that they shot in there was just a a plethora of different you know little statuettes and like designs on tables and there there was almost no plain surface in the room you know no plain surfaces on this set and it's all very rich and kind of uh, taxing on your eyes, right? It's it's kind of hard to focus because there's just so much going on. Uh, and I think this is, you know, especially capitalized on during some of the sequences that are a bit darker, right? Where you can't exactly make out things and you have all this rich texture that your, you know, your imagination, your mind can play with. Uh, I think it's very, it's, it's very interesting work. And then some of the more, uh, the, the production design elements that, that kind of work as, as practical effects as well, the bending door. So at, at one period of the film, when there's kind of the ominous banging on the door and the, you know, the spectral voices, we see the door to, to Theo and Nell's bedroom being kind of pushed in and it, it it winds up looking a little like almost like a rubbery texture it looks very malleable it stops looking like a, a, a rigid wood which this is kind of a side note but it reminds me a lot of uh, uh later in the 80s body horror films and in particular the david cronenberg film videodrome in which uh, a television screen kind of pushes out and it does the same thing where it becomes this kind of weirdly pliable like organic substance so i think that's a really interesting effect here do you know how they were able to make that effect uh so apparently uh, uh according to robert wise it was a wood door and they had one of the the stronger crew members pushing on a single point on the other side with some kind of pole or something to bend it inward wow really that's crazy you, I didn't think, I didn't think something like a door could do that. I, I, it doesn't look, it doesn't look like a door anymore, but I mean, I guess that's what, you know, that's what he says. I guess you, you never know, but if, if that's the case, it's, a, it's astounding looking. And then also we have, uh, 
uh, one of one of the great set pieces, the spiral staircase in the library. That's kind of uh, uh, only barely nailed into the wall is constantly like shifting, and we get you know several great shots of that and the camera moving up and moving down the staircase, as well as in the kind of greenhouse section of the house. We have these these three kind of Romanesque statues, but they look, I mean, they look very different than that, but they have these very detailed faces that are kind of in grimaces. Um, I don't know. That really stuck, stood out to me. Uh, I was wondering, Monica, what other, like what other set elements stood out to you? I think especially the statues faces, not just those statues in the greenhouse courtyard or whatever it was. Um, but also just the statues that were distributed around the house because they were, I think, they kind of functioned as stand-ins for any visible monsters because in this in this movie, we never get to actually see a monster or a ghost, right? It's always just noises and suggestions. Um, so for me, the, the statues' faces accomplished that presence in a way. It's kind of like, um, what is it, Sex in the City? The uh, New York City is like the fifth girl. Isn't that the expression? Oh, I heard that before, but sure. Okay, well, that is an expression I've heard about that show. Uh, and it feels similarly like the, the statues wind up being the, the kind of extra, the larger cast of characters, right? Right. Also, and this is this is a little bit different, but I was wondering if there were any uh, costuming choices that that stood out to you. Yeah, I noticed how all the characters dressed almost stereotypically in line with their personality or their position in society. So Marque is uh, an academic. He's wearing the corduroy jacket with the patches on the elbows. Luke is the college boy. He's wearing his jacket and tie. And then Nell is kind of a plain Jane. She's wearing conservative blouses and and she's older, right? She's kind of got that. They kind of characterize her as a spinster, but then her hair is really long and ironically a little bit little girl like. And then Theo is the one who's fashion forward. And actually her wardrobe was designed by Mary Quant, who would later go on to be instrumental in the mod movement later in the 60s and is also credited with at least contributing to the advent of miniskirts and hot pants. And she had her own makeup line and everything. So, um, yeah, that's what I got from that. Yeah, Theo uh, uh, very much looked hip with, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Russ Tamblin's outfit i i don't know i really liked russ tamblin's character and just in that like college boy like you said with the tie and he shows up and like i'm not afraid of ghosts you know So uh, to go along with our discussion of production design, I thought we could get into a little bit of the cinematography here as well as the editing. Uh, so first off on the cinematography front, the credited cinematographer is Davis Bolton, who I think this is kind of interesting because I had never specifically heard of this kind of division of labor before. Uh, but according to Robert Wise, Davis Bolton was a cinematographer who was um, was known as a lighting cameraman in the sense that he exclusively worked on lighting. Uh, and so he apparently wasn't involved uh, as far as like specifically camera setups, lenses, et cetera, et cetera. That responsibility actually went to Alan McCabe, who was a primary camera operator on the film. I had never specifically heard of that because usually the understanding is that the the cinematographer, the director of photography is kind of in charge of both camera and lighting, right? Like every component that goes into recording the image, right? This film was shot in black and white, obviously. We understand that that having something in black and white, especially horror films, isn't that odd of a technique, right? Because there's a sense that, that black and white brings a certain degree of drama. But at this period, this was in 1962, pardon, 1963, it was pretty rare for a film to be shot in black and white by this period because it was kind of, you know, color was the big thing, right? Everyone wanted to do color. 
But Robert Wise was so attached to the idea of having this film in black and white that it was actually included in his contract. And in the 90s, Turner, they got the rights to the film and they were actually planning to colorize this picture. And Robert Wise was able to stop them specifically because he had this black and white clause in his contract. He was able to prevent them from doing that. Do you happen to know if by 1963 there was still significant cost savings to making films in black and white? I would imagine there would have been. That was the case for a while, but uh, it was so much the style to have, you know, color film, right? That he was still getting pressure from uh, MGM at that time to shoot this in color. Um, That being said, I'm really glad you brought up the budget because this was actually a pretty low budget film. I think it was was made for right around a million dollars. So like a... um, a million sixty thousand, I think, was the ultimate figure. The returns on it didn't actually do super, super well because it made just about that exact amount at the box office. Uh, but this certainly, uh, certainly was a, a very low budget film, uh, even for the time. That wasn't very much money. So the shooting strategy on this film, I think, we can kind of divide it into into two distinct modes, right? So we have the normal scenes, quote unquote, the scenes that are primarily revolving around dialogue in which there is not necessarily a uh, a ghostly presence. And then we have the supernatural scenes. So the normal scenes typically have uh, camera angles that are more standard. The camera is upright. Uh, there's a lot of use of, of deep focus, meaning that uh, multiple kind of planes of focus are very clearly visible. This is something that Robert Wise actually got from his time working with Orson Welles on Citizen Kane. One of the most famous elements of Citizen Kane is, is how deep the focus is on that picture. Uh, so Robert Wise uses that strategy here as well. And then also in the kind of the normal scenes, we have the standard like dialogue, shot, reverse shot, person talking, person responding, etc. As we get into the supernatural scenes, that's where this film starts to become extraordinarily experimental, especially for a, a studio film. So we have a lot of really, really quick cuts, right? A lot of sequences, um, especially at the beginning, we have the, the reel of kind of all the deaths at the, the mansion. And in those segments, we have a lot of really quick cuts when the people are dying, the, the carriage crash. We see this, you know, the face of the horses and the carriage wheel and then the tree and then back to the faces of the horses within, you know, within two seconds, everything happening very quickly. And all the while we're also getting camera shots that are that are very shaky kind of handheld this is pretty extraordinary especially for something that's not a documentary feature at this time to have a shot that's that's handheld that's very very strange for this period but again during these supernatural moments as a way of kind of spooking the audience building up that tension or rather releasing it we have that as kind of a uh, the explosion of tension and then also, I did want to mention, this doesn't happen as frequently as the the quick cuts and the shaky cam, but we do also have the use of the camera as kind of a hovering, like, spectral force, right? So very early on in the film, we get an example of this. When Nell first arrives and meets Theo, and the two of them plan to go to the main entrance hall, I believe, to to wait for the other people to arrive. And they wind up getting lost in this hallway and the doors are locked. And then suddenly there's kind of a, you know, a spirit descends upon them and they start having this crisis. And you can see that the camera kind of goes from being again, more in the, you know, the normal shooting strategy of being upright, relatively static. And now it starts lifting up off the ground and hovering around. So we're almost getting like the, you know, the POV shot from the ghost perspective with editing here. Again, the, the quick cuts as I had mentioned before, but we do also get a lot of dissolves in between scenes, which I think is, is a uh, pretty standard. Like that's not really a shocker for a film from this period. Uh, but it really does seem to, to really delight in extending these dissolves. So, 
A dissolve is basically the expression used when if you're cutting between one scene and the next scene, the scene you start on slowly disappears as the scene you're cutting to slowly appears. And so you kind of get this like mixed image. It's a little bit more abstract. Uh, And this film likes to implement those dissolves again, typically after one of these supernatural events right so it's it kind of capitalizing again on the the release of tension in the film so there are a lot you know again there there are a lot more strategies in this but that's kind of just an overview of what i noticed here something that's really interesting and something you brought up earlier monica is that we never actually see anything this entire film we never see any ghost, anything, you know, even a shadow of a ghost, nothing. The closest we come is that door bending inward. It's odd because a film cannot always be successful in this way. So there's um, Chekhov's gun, uh, some of you may be familiar with, which essentially is a principle. Um, I, b- I believe the quote is like, if you show a gun, uh, you have to show the gun going off. Basically the idea that if you introduce an element you have to capitalize on it at a certain point. Otherwise it feels like kind of this odd loose strand. Uh, But this film is almost entirely built on the gun, not going off. We never get that kind of certain, Oh, this, you know, now I am actually looking at this ghost. And so I'm wondering Monica with that, you know, with that kind of in mind, how did you think this film built up the tension? Like, do you think it did it well? And Do you think it it, uh, paid off? I think it did. And that might be what was lacking in the other like horror films that we've seen um, as far as what the difference in making me scared. Right. Even though we know a ghost or whatever never actually materialized, it's still all built up to Nell being possessed, apparently, while she's driving, getting in a car crash and dying. So I think it pays off in the ways that it affects the characters, even though we don't get to see the the source of that uh, supernatural power. It's interesting because I think there are a lot of films that do, this is kind of a common refrain that people will typically use when they're um, usually criticizing maybe gory or horror films, this idea that, oh, well, what you don't see is kind of the scariest possible thing. And I think there's, you know, there's a truth to that, but I still think it is so rare to get a film that is so resolutely against showing anything. This may be the film in which, the horror film in which you see the absolute least of the thing that you you are afraid of, right? It's just such a it's such a unique choice. And to add, you know how I said earlier that the faces of the statues substitute for seeing an actual ghostly presence. There's also several times where I, I'm pretty sure it's just Nell runs and almost runs into mirrors and scares herself because she sees her own reflection. And we can, like, delve into that deeper. Like, is this, like, a psychological thing? But, yeah, rather than seeing a ghost, seeing a face that happens to be your own. Right. Let's actually get into some of those um, some of those plot implications. Uh, so, first off, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the relationship between Theo and Nell. Theo, who um, also appeared in the Shirley Jackson novel. In the novel, it was kind of loosely hinted that Theo was gay. Uh, And then in the film, they make it much more explicit than was in the novel, but is still never, you know, no one announces that Theo is gay. Theo does not introduce herself as a lesbian. It's still it's still kind of this thing that is unsaid. Uh, But this is also one of the earliest appearances in kind of a big like pop culture piece of a gay character. And I think her relationship with Nell, I think is, is interesting and complex. So when they first meet and for a little bit afterwards, Theo is kind of constantly flirting with Nell and making these, these kind of romantic gestures towards her. And Nell is seemingly, you know, seemingly unaware, although later on she does rebuff Theo and says, calls her a unnatural creature, which is a pretty, you know, pretty vile homophobic thing. So clearly she was aware, but she she kind of chooses not to hear kind of Theo's come-ons in the moment, partially because she's she's kind of built up this fantasy of being with Dr. Mark Way that Theo mocks. 
And so we create this love triangle of sorts. Uh, and I think we we see we do see this on occasion in pop culture narratives. And a lot of times what will happen is that we have kind of, you know, the love triangle and the two that pair off are considered like the most heteronormatively acceptable, right? So this is something that frequently happens to the idea of like a nice, pleasant heterosexual couple that is, you know, torn up by by the presence of like a, a gay character or a character whose sexuality is, you know, again, considered non-normative. And that's not really what happens here. I think, you know, Nell is interested in Dr. Markway and is frustrated that he's not interested in her. And then Theo is interested in Nell and has that same frustration. Uh, Monica, I was wondering what, like, what did you make of this relationship? And do we think that, that Theo is portrayed compassionately? To be honest, like, Theo being gay, that completely sailed over my head. I had no idea. So I was thinking I have to go back and watch this movie again because I didn't. I got that she was critical of um, Nell's interest in Dr. Marquay, but I didn't read any of her behavior as coming on to her. Do you have like a specific example that I that I might remember? Uh, so I, I can't remember any of the dialogue scenes, but when they first meet, she like hits on her a lot. And then also when they're both kind of cowering in the bedroom, right? Like she's constantly calling for Nell. And I think putting the, you know, putting those two characters on the bed together, I think that has some significance as well. I I didn't get, I didn't get that at all. I really just thought she was being friendly and like, it's normal, like socially acceptable for women to like sleep in the same bed and all that kind of stuff, you know? In, in a straight friendship or whatever. Oh, um, sure, sure. But I, I mean, I think if they had had, you know, the two of them were in bed, you know, cowering in fear from the ghosts and there hadn't been that dialogue before. But like I do, it's pretty, it's pretty blatant. I wish I had pulled some of the quotes from there, but like, I, I think it's pretty on the nose. Okay. Well, all this to say, since I in 2020 missed the overtures do you think audiences at the time would have even noticed? Well, so I don't, I couldn't really say, I think they were, they would probably would have been less likely uh, to have seen this at the time. Um, and that's actually, that's actually an interesting point. So the film originally, I think after the opening sequence of like the, uh, the mansion, originally we were supposed to get a sequence of Theo before she she arrived at Hill House where she had she was like breaking up with a girlfriend but then Robert Wise pulled that out and his statement was that like oh well it's a movie that's kind of so obsessed with with subtleties and so it didn't feel appropriate that's what he says the scenario was uh, I think it's probably far more likely that the studio got involved and that, you know, that maybe he also, uh, Wise himself, didn't want to have that open a portrayal of, you know, a lesbian, right? So it's like, oh, if, you know, people are really homophobic, they might not even know, so we can sell more tickets or whatever. You you had asked, uh, do we think Theo is co- portrayed compassionately? Um, I thought that... Because she, as well as um, College Boy, like, they were both kind of jerks. But um, at, at the end of the day, I I felt like she ultimately had compassion for Nell. I guess maybe it was romantic affection that I totally missed. But I had just interpreted it as compassion, right? She goes and uh, when Nell's about to drive away and she goes to say goodbye and then Nell winds up dying. And, and I think Theo seems you know, really upset and she feels genuine compassion for her. So to me, her showing compassion makes her seem, feels to me like she's portrayed relatively compassionately, or at least not any um, worse than a college boy, whose name I keep forgetting. I I had another question a little bit. So, you know, Theo is telling Nell to kind of, you know, um, get over Dr. Markway, but was Dr. Markway interested in Nell romantically, or do you think that was more of a manifestation of his academic fascination with her connection to the supernatural? I would imagine it, it 
would be the latter, right? Like he clearly takes an interest in her, but it does feel much more like as this this subject, right? That has this kind of interesting baggage. And then I think also later on, he has that line about um, how like, oh, don't you understand? Like if someone, you know, if an, any member of the group is found to have been hallucinating or something like just imagining these things and my entire study gets thrown out because it's not you know scientifically sound which uh as a side note none of this is scientifically sound to begin Mm -hmm. with but anyway (laughs) okay well i guess uh, uh the last big thing i wanted to talk about in this film uh and and i think it's it's kind of its defining feature in some ways is the idea of um the events of the film being being the result of kind of supernatural intervention or psychological trauma, uh, uh, anxiety. Shirley Jackson. So when when Robert Wise was talking about adapting adapting her novel, and he spoke with her, and he was talking about this angle of the idea of every event in the film possibly just being you know kind of Nell having this this nervous breakdown, right? And like, that's, you know, you could interpret it that way, or it could be the result of like, you know, uh, supernatural intervention. Uh, Shirley Jackson said that her novel, like very much that supernatural things did occur, right? That was absolutely part of it. It's not, you know, it wasn't all just, you know, kind of someone's uh, psychological manifestation. So I think that's probably the biggest way in which the film and the novel differ. Although I have not read the novel. That's just my understanding of it. But so I think this manifests in a really interesting way in the filmic techniques here. So because the film is kind of agnostic about the exact nature of the events we get a lot of different perspectives throughout. So the opening section of the film, as I had mentioned before, where we're, we're kind of cataloging all the deaths at Hill House, that's all narrated by Dr. Mark Way, right? So we have his perspective. And then later in the film, when we introduce Nell, so many of her scenes, uh, she's on, on camera and she is narrating them. We're kind of getting a peek into what her thoughts are, which a lot of times are kind of at odds with what her behavior is. And so at that point, the film kind of, you know, again, becomes from her perspective. But then again, when we move into the supernatural moment, sometimes we we get this camera that indicates that it is somehow itself ghostly, right? We are seeing from that perspective, uh, which I didn't read anything specific to this, but I think kind of might have been inspired to a certain degree by uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho or possibly the the uh, prior film uh, Peeping Tom, which both kind of embrace this idea of, of taking the perspective of the killer, right? And here we're kind of, as we're taking the perspective of the supernatural, this is still a relatively new thing to these kinds of films. That being said, Monica, I'm, I'm wondering if... Like when you were watching the film, do you think maybe I'm wrong and there's a stronger argument to be made for like one of these perspectives that the film might actually be taking more of a stance and I'm giving it credit for? So your your view is pretty much that it's down the middle. It could go either way. I, I think so. For me, it seems straightforwardly supernatural because all the characters experience what's going on unless we are supposed to think that there's a mass hallucination and we, the viewers, are hallucinating along with them, right? Because you have the, even though you never see a ghost, you have the noises, you have the bendy door, you have the cold air. For me, if it was supposed to be psychological, I'd love a deeper explanation of it. I mean, I think obviously you could go in circles and look at any movie and think, well, maybe the viewer is supposed to be um, hallucinating everything that we see in this movie. None of it is real. Um, And from, and so from that perspective, like, yeah, it could just be in everybody's heads, but for me, it's, it seems supernatural. Right. So I, I think you make a really good point. I think the, um, the the bendy door as you called it, uh, (laughs) I think that that kind of poses the biggest problem for that interpretation. Uh, I still kind of feel it could go either way, 
just because the only the only two people who saw it were Nell and um, Nell and Theo and Nell, you know, being the character who's kind of having the nervous breakdown and Theo, who uh, considers herself psychic, which kind of indicates to me that she would be kind of more willing to to see or imagine supernatural things uh, if we're to understand that, you know, there actually is no supernatural in this film. Um, but I, th- I think you make really good points. Well, I thought I was thinking about the cold air. There's they noticed the cold a few different times. Um, and I know actually Theo seems to be the one who picks up on it a lot. But there's at least one point. I think they're standing in front of the nursery and all four of them recognize that it's cold. And OK, so we've already established that Theo and Nell are prone to believe in supernatural things. Dr. Markway probably wants to. So maybe that affects his skepticism or lack thereof. And then Luke is the only one who's like, there's got to be a draft around here, right? Um, And Dr. Markway is like, no, no way. You like where we are in the building, it's not possible. Um, So, I I mean, maybe you could interpret that as like, well, three out of four, we're not really looking for there to be a draft. And maybe if they looked a little bit harder, they would have found that, yes, there was a draft. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of starting to come to your side about this now because i was thinking also that like the two um the two men markway and luke were chasing the like phantom dog which happens off screen but they talk about it and like well they both you know markway went after that but then it seemed like luke saw it as well which seems suspicious although who knows maybe that really was just a dog (laughs) maybe it was an actual dog not a ghost dog (laughs) i saw a ghost dog It's a golden here, retriever. <laughs> <laughs> but by the end of the film, did did Luke seem like he was convinced that something supernatural was going on? Or Grace? Grace for that matter? Because both they I think they were the two who were like, nothing's happening here. Oh, I I think so. Cause um Grace, I mean, the entire reason she disappeared, uh, cause she got up in the middle of the night because she became frightened and then got lost in the house as Theo and Nell had previously. So it seemed like that made her believe and I don't I don't think Luke ever specifically says he believes in the supernatural, but he has that one throwaway line when he's talking to Markway and he was like, Hey, you want the house? Like I'll sell it to you cheap, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Because he was at the beginning, he was like, oh, I'm going to make all this money off of all these books and stuff. And then later he was like, basically, I need to burn this thing down. Well, so all that being said, I guess between kind of the psych- psychological and supernatural interpretations of the events in the film, I was wondering what I know you think it's uh, uh, supernatural, but I was w- wondering if either of those interpretations struck you as more interesting or more frightening. Just the interpretation that everything's in everybody's head, that would be more interesting if if I felt like there was more ev- evidence that that was the case, if it seemed a little bit more ambiguous. Since to me it seems pretty supernatural, I find less interest in that interpretation. Overall, though, I think it all works and mo- most frightening. Well, for Nell, they're both pretty frightening because either way she died at the end. Um, but for everybody else, I kind of think the supernatural interpretation is scarier. Well, I think uh, uh, part of the reason I ask that is um, I'm a I'm a really big fan of like supernatural horror. I, th- I guess that's my favorite subgenre. Um, but what I found watching watching the movie this time was I, I thought the idea that all of this was kind of her having a mental breakdown was actually I think more frightening to me than it would have been before. Uh, and I don't know if that's just you know just kind of uh, you're getting older because I, I guess for the record, I do not believe in ghosts. So that doesn't really um, pose much of a threat. Uh, and I, I don't, you know, it's like, I don't, uh, movies kind of rely on this shorthand for like, Oh, so-and-so is having uh, vaguely like a mental breakdown. And so they can be imagining anything. And that's obviously not medically accurate, but I think the idea of having like having a profound psychological problem and having your life kind of turn into a nightmare like this, even if it's not necessarily specifically, I believe there are ghosts here, but kind of, you know, the living, the nightmare element that, that really creeped me out. This viewing that really struck me. So I guess that about does it. Um, Monica, did you have any final thoughts on this film? And also just out of curiosity, what did you think the scariest part was? 
Um, maybe the part where they're going to look for Grace because she's gotten lost in the mansion and Nell splits off by herself and is kind of running around in the halls alone. Oof. Maybe, yeah. maybe that. Yeah. How about you? I think it came pretty early, but that, that scene where Nell and Theo are lost in the hallway, um, just because of how, mm. how abruptly it happens. And you have, I really, I have to read this book because there's so many great lines of dialogue that I think come from it. But, you know, Theo is kind of on the other side of the hallway and she's yelling that, uh, yelling that the house wants Nell and Nell is backing up and the camera kind of does this like ghostly floating thing. And then the, the key light that they had on Nell they, I guess they, they tilt it down or they cover it or something, and now suddenly the rest of the hallway is somewhat lit, and she's just this, like, black spot on this. Oh, it, you know, talking about it creeps me out. <laughs> I, I was really enchanted by that sequence. Oh, you know what else happened? Um, we got to see the doorknobs move. That, that was something else that was like, well, maybe one of the others is, like, pulling a prank on them, but... Hmm. <laughs> It's the ghost dog, obviously. Ghost dog <laughs> with his opposable thumbs opening doors. <laughs> also, I still, it blows my mind that he made this and then, uh, uh, was it like two years later, made Sound of Music? Was... Oh, I know. Like, man, greatest hits. What? <laughs> All by himself. Right. Jeez. <laughs> well, that does it for our conversation on The Haunting. Uh, I'd like to cite my sources. We have the article Elegant Chills, The Haunting, which was written by George E. Turner and appears in American Cinematographer. Uh, we also have Behind the Camera, The Haunting, written by Andrea Passifume, and uh, that appears on the Turner Classic Movies website. We also have Queer and Now and Then, 1963, written by Michael Koreski, which appears in Film Comment. Uh, and as always, Wikipedia and IMDb. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, we are Mayday Matinee on Twitter, maybe Today Matinee on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to send us an email, maybe Today Matinee at gmail.com. Uh, we are also on Patreon and uh, have just uploaded our first Patreon exclusive episode, which continues our Halloween horror theme. Uh, so that is up in that feed right now if you're interested in checking it out. Uh, and just in general, if you're interested in supporting us, the Patreon is the way to go. Next week, we are going to be starting our theme of censored films with the 1920 film Within Our Gates. I'm David. I'm Monica. And this has been Maybe Today Matinee.